Lord, we come uh, to you and we ask now that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. Thank you for your word. What a wonderful gift uh, you have given us that reveals you. It makes you known. Jesus did that and then you've given us the scripture as well to, to make you known to us. We pray that we'll understand you a little bit better, know you a little bit better as a result of our time in the in your word today. May the Spirit have freedom to interact with our hearts and our minds um, and, and implant the word into us that it may bear fruit for the glory of your name. We ask this because we know that would honor Christ our Savior. Amen. So as many, many years ago, back in the mid-80s, I believe, don't have it on a, in my brain exactly when it was, but it was many, 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 many years ago now. I went for a, a hike with two other men in, in the church. We hiked Johnson Trail, 22-mile hike. And we decided we'd do it over three days. 11 miles in the first day, and end up at a, a lake, Bench Lake. We thought we'd spend that day there fishing, just enjoying uh, each other's company. And then the, the last day we would hike out. We were just partway in on the first day. And the youngest of us, which was not me, I happen to be the oldest of us. And uh, the youngest of us pulled a muscle in his groin. So he was kind of laboring along. And he was about my height. And uh, the other gentleman we were with, Rick Simmons, was about 6'4". And his legs were really long compared to ours. And so when he was in the lead, it was like we were trotting to keep up with him doing a casual stroll. And that, that um, I had pulled his groin muscle. I mean, he was hurting. And we labored through the day, and we finally re- reached the Bench Lake uh, late in the afternoon. So it was summer, so it was still, you know, it wasn't completely dark. I think it was an August uh, hike that we did. And so we, we set up camp, and we uh, slept through the night. And during the middle of the night, we listened to a beaver slap his tail on the lake all night long. So we didn't really sleep, because all we heard was a beaver slapping its tail. Very noisy, those creatures. And then it started raining. You know August. You know rain. And it rained, and it rained, and it rained all the next day. Three of us in a six-man tent, which happens to be good for two people. And we spent the entire day in the tent um, playing some kind of games. I can't remember what they were. Which is, if you know me, not my favorite thing to do. (laughs) Playing games and me, not good. The next day we we, uh, headed out and uh, we were heading towards the finish line. And I was was all right. My guy with the pulled groin, I mean, he was hurting. He had gotten stiff during that down day. And I mean, he was hurting. And uh, to be honest with you, all three of us were getting a little fatigued as we went on that second half. It was a little bit downhill, which helped. And uh, I 
in my head I had it pictured so at the south end of Johnson Trail you, you get to Trail Lake when you get to Trail Lake there's a hatchery there and that's where the end of the trail is and I thought as soon as we see the lake we're there almost and then we're the trails right along the lake not realizing that there was a long hike alongside the lake to get to the hatchery but boy when we crossed the finish line we were so happy that's kind of what Paul's talking about in our passage in Philippians chapter 3. Crossing the finish line, running the race, and crossing the finish line, and being oh so happy when we do. So let's, let's read our text again. Uh, chapter 3, verse 12 through 16. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any... In anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So as we've gone through not just this paragraph, but the previous, what we saw in the beginning of chapter 3 was Paul warning the, the church about false teachers. People that were infiltrating and, and leading the believers into some faulty thinking. Generally, probably, they were Jewish false teachers. And they were stressing that you needed to keep the law, do all the rituals. You had to to essentially become a a, a good Jew to be right with God. Yeah, faith in Christ is necessary, but you've got to be circumcised. And you've got to keep the special days. And you've got to make the sacrifices. Or maybe you don't make sacrifices, but you've got to do all these other rituals. So we warned them about them. And he says, you know, they, 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 th- they have a really high view of themselves, like their spiritual resume is on the, you know, up here. And, and then Paul kind of says, well, you know, if they wanted to compare resumes, I could do that. And I would top them all. I'd be king of the hill. And he goes through his past spiritual resume before he came to know Christ when he met him on the Damascus Road. I was this, I was this, I was this, like seven things. He says, I was all these things. And then we got to verse 7, and he says, but he says, you know, I've counted that all loss. He moved into this analogy of a gain-loss, assets, liabilities kind of uh, way of talking about it. And he says, all of that, you know, that's one big loss. In fact, it's more than loss, we saw. It was a detriment because it kept me from Christ. It wasn't just a zero, it was a minus 10 or a minus 20 or whatever. Now, I, now that I have come to know the surpassing worth of the value of knowing Jesus Christ, that is the great gain. That's the ultimate gain. That, we were singing it, the treasure, the treasure. He is our treasure. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians says. And Paul realized that, and he says, ever since then, the way I view life is entirely different. And that was verses 7 through 11. I've come... To know through the gospel, 
come to know that through knowing Christ, I see life completely different than I used to. And it's like day and night to me. And, and, and so he kind of walks us through that in those uh, verses about knowing Christ, being the greatest game and gain, and everything else is like scuba. It's rubbish. It's, it's worse than trash. It's stinking trash, or it's rotting flesh. It's, it's to be thrown out. Get rid of any kind of thinking that suggests that I can be right with God on any merit of my, my own. By just being good, by being, you know, a keeper of the law, by or maybe just being better than others, because that's how most people think. You know, I'm better than others, so I'll be right with God. Surely they will get it in the end, but I won't because, you know, I'm better than them. And he says, that's all rubbish. Don't believe that that's a lie. That's what those false teachers were promoting. And, uh, and, and he says, you know, it, it really is all about being found in Christ, gaining Christ, and having a full knowledge of Christ. And that's where he kind of ended it in verse 10. And then in verse 12 through 16, he changes metaphors, but he's continuing the thought that the gospel is transformational. And, and that way we view life is entirely different. And, and the change in metaphor or analogy as he, he goes from the the gain-loss system to a running of a race picture, being an athlete, pressing toward the goal to gain the prize. And, uh, and, and as we began looking at this, I suggested to you that there are four things that we should understand with this idea of what it takes to press toward the goal to win the prize. Four things that Paul identifies in verses 12 through 14. We looked at two of them last week. First was that it requires a proper awareness of our spiritual condition. We saw that when he said, not that I've already obtained it. I haven't. I'm not already perfect. And, you know, and that gives us a hint into part of what the false teaching was. Perfectionism, legalism, that you can in this life be perfect before God in God's eyes. Not because of what Christ has done to make you perfect or in what God is doing in perfecting you day to day, but you can already in this life reach perfection. And that false doctrine still exists today. People who think that at some point they will they turn their life over to Christ and they no longer struggle with temptation. They no longer struggle with sin. They just live a righteous life, and they will until Christ returns, and they get their new body. That's false teaching, and he's, he's saying, no, I haven't made it. And if he hadn't made it, I don't think we'd say we've made it. I mean, you've got to see that. He's an apostle, right? He's an apostle being used by the Lord. And if he had made it, and he acknowledges that, then let's not pretend that we've made it. That's what he's kind of saying to them. No, I haven't made it, made it yet. You have to have a proper awareness of where you are. And maybe where you are is kind of in the first steps of being a believer. You know, the believer, I mean, the scripture describes it like a, like a growth process from being a little child to an, you know, a young man and to a, um, an older person. That's how John describes it in 1 John chapter 2. 
And, and so you have to be aware, aware of your spiritual condition. Why? Because if you're not, then you're going to be falling into temptation and you're going to be easily misled and, and it's, you're not going to be living the kind of life that Christ wants you to live. And you're not going to experience the kind of benefit of the Holy Spirit leading you through life, walking in the Spirit and being victorious in your life. And then the second thing that we talked about, it requires a maximum effort to lay hold of the prize. That was in verse 12 as well, where he says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. So he uses the word there, dioko, that is not just pressing on is how the ESV puts it. It is a word of pursuit, an intense word. I'm hot on the trail of something. I'm giving it my all, maximum effort to obtain this, what? Full knowledge of Christ, growing in Christ, being found in Christ, gaining Christ more and more each and every day. He says it takes maximum effort. I'm so glad that Jesus gave his all to get us. And that's what Paul says. You know, I, 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 I press on, I pursue gaining more knowledge of Christ, a better relationship with Christ, knowing more about him. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He pressed on. He pursued us so that we could become like him. And uh, so, so very powerful. So that brings us where we left off and and it is the third thing that is required in this pressing on toward the goal to, to acquire the prize. So if you're filling in your insert, it, it requires a forward focus without a backward glance. It requires a forward focus without a backward glance. Now, this is going to be in verses 13 and 14. So let's read those verses again. Just get it in our head. You'll... You'll see what I'm saying as I read the verse. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So this pressing on toward the goal, it requires this forward focus without a backward glance. And uh, in the statement, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. I mean, Paul's making a contrast between himself and what the false teachers were promoting, what some perhaps of the Philippians were already thinking. Either that Paul was saying that he had already come to perfection or that it's possible for a believer to come to perfection before you cross the finish line, before you uh, go to be with the Lord, be in his presence. Paul re- did not regard that he had arrived at a full knowledge of Christ and a complete conformity to him, which is how he had ended in verse 11. I, you know, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of suffering, being conformed to his death. He says, I've not yet obtained that. Not just the death part, but any part of that, you know, I have not yet obtained that. Some may have taught that performance of Jewish rites or 
uh, you know, keeping the law could bring such perfection. And others might have, uh, you know, concluded that keeping the apostolic teachings, you know, the teachings that Paul was giving and Peter and, and, and so on, the, the ones that they had already received, that if you just kept those, then you would have full knowledge of Christ. But Paul says it wasn't that way, even with him. And he's getting direct revelation from God to write down as scripture. He hasn't yet obtained it. And we should take note, by the way, that he starts out by calling them brothers, right? And by brothers, he's not referring just to the men. He's brothers, sisters, is a male, a masculine term, but oftentimes it's used brothers and sisters family. So he, he, he uses that. Why? To emphasize that what he is telling them about himself and about them and the false teachers is coming from one who holds them close to his heart. Go back to chapter one real quick and uh, just remind you of these verses we looked at a long time ago now. But it's verses seven and eight. He's, he tells how he feels about them. It is because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So what he's saying here, what he's writing to them, and it's like he's saying it almost in person to them, it comes from one who had brought them the gospel. Right? He's the one that brought them the gospel. God had, through a dream, directed him to go into Macedonia. And that was the second city that he went to, was Philippi. And he brought the gospel and the church was started. And he had a strong sense of responsibility as an apostle for their continued growth in the Lord. And he doesn't want these dear saints, those that he holds so dear, he yearns to see them again, to be led away from the truth of the gospel in its simplicity or in any aspect of it. You know, as I was thinking about that, I was saying that is the genuine heart of every true shepherd of God's flock. They care about the people that God has put under their care. And they don't want them to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. They don't want them to to rush headlong into danger. He had a true shepherd's heart. And that is true of every true pastor of God's people, shepherd. I feel that way. (laughs) I do. And so Paul continues with this athletic me- uh, metaphor. I, I pointed out last week that that's the metaphor he's using. It becomes more clear in verse 13. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So it's kind of like he's saying this. It, it doesn't matter how much effort is put toward something. If one does not focus their attention and keep their eyes on the goal, it's bad news. Whether that's a career, whether that is, you know, a a relationship, marriage, finding a spouse. We talked about a number of different things last year that people are pursuing. You got to 
forward focus, and you've got to keep your eyes on the goal. Now, every athlete would tell you this. They know that runners in a race must fix their eyes on what's in front of them, right? They must not look down at their feet. You know what happens if you look down at your feet when you run in a race? You run into the next lane. They'll tell you that in driving school. Don't look at the center line because you'll pull into the other lane. You got to fix forward. Don't look down at your feet. You know, they, a runner must not look to the side to see if you know someone is catching them, and and definitely don't look behind you to see how far ahead you are of the other competitors. It was funny, I was watching some of the Olympics, and this is a little different in the marathon, but boy, when they were coming de- uh, down to the end of the marathon, uh, the men's marathon, I mean, the guy in the lead was constantly. I was like, he's going to trip and fall. It was crazy. He was so far in front of people, I don't even know why he was, you know, looking back. But every athlete would tell you that's important, fix your eyes forward. Keep your eye on the goal in positive contrast. You notice what he says, but, right? But, I haven't obtained it yet, he said at the beginning. You know, you know, I, I haven't. But one thing I do, I, I uh, and by the way, this is in contrast to what? To what the false teachers were saying about attaining spiritual perfection in this life. Uh, through legalism or whatever. Paul says, there's one thing, one thing which I do, which, by the way, actually contains something that he doesn't do and something that he does do. There's one thing that I do. It has a I don't do and a I do do. And then it's a clear statement of what it is that he does. It's it's kind of interesting uh, grammatically as you read through uh, verse 13 and 14. But the point is, he won't allow anything to distract him or divert him from his course. I read last week in Acts 20 where he says, nothing else matters to me other than running the race of ministry that the Lord has given me to preach the gospel to people. There's nothing else that matters to me. And he didn't mean I don't have to pay attention to other things in life. Nothing else matters. It doesn't have the same value or importance to me as this. And, and so he's, you know, he says, I'm not going to allow anything to distract me or divert me. I'm not going to be looking back. I'm going to keep focusing forward. And he expresses his idea in such rhetorical um, emotion-filled, passionate uh, words. The, the form and structure of his sentence in, in, in verse 13 and 14 is such it, that it radiates the, the depth of his feelings. And it begins with two... Now, this is going to get a little technical, maybe. It begins with two concise, participial phrases. Uh, participle. It's kind of like a verb, but it's a noun that has action. It, 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 it helps you understand the main point. How's that? Don't leave us 
It's a qualifying statement. How do you like that? Okay. So there's two concise percipial phrases, and it is followed then by a, a clear statement. So let me lay it out for you. Now, our, our English text, I'll put it something like this. Um, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the two percipial phrases, you know, that he begins with, if you were looking at it in the Greek, like I do when I'm studying through a passage, I would translate it this way, because this is actually a better translation. <laughs> and that's not pride. It just is. It, there's a, it's called the mende. Those are Greek words. Mende clause. Mende. On the one hand and on the other hand. So that's how this lays out at the beginning. One thing I do. On the one hand, the things behind, forgetting. On the other hand, the things that lie ahead, straining forward. I mean, it's, it's, that's what I mean by this. It's passion and it's motion filled. It's, it's dynamic. Get it in your hand. On one hand, you, the things that are behind you, you've got to be forgetting them. On the other end, the things that lie out in front of you that God has for you, that's what you've got to be straining for. That's what you've got to keep going after. Now, strictly speaking, I mean, the principal clause of verse 14, I press toward the goal. That, that is what describes the one thing that he does. The, the participial phrases are just helping us understand what he means by that. I, here's the one thing. I press toward the goal. How do I do that? Ah, on the one hand, forgetting what lies behind. On the other hand, straining forward to the things that lie ahead. It really is quite beautiful the way he lays this out, at least to these eyes, maybe not to your eyes, but to, to me. And when Paul writes, forgetting what lies behind, understand, he's not saying that he obliterates the memory of the past. That doesn't, that's not what he means by forgetting. You know, it, that, it doesn't mean that with God either, when he says, I will forget your sins. It doesn't mean that God couldn't recall what you did, that he doesn't know what you did. No, it's not like his mind went blank. And Paul said, he's not saying, I, I can't remember. I, I just can't remember what I did in the past. No, he's saying, I know exactly what I did, but I don't let it, those things, keep me from pressing toward the goal to receive the prize. He made a conscious decision to refuse letting the things of his past absorb his attention and impede his progress. So, what does that mean? Well, he never allowed his Jewish heritage and all of those things that we talked about in, the, in verse 4 and 5 of, of chapter 3, or his previous Christian apostolic achievements to obstruct his running the race. Because they were both in the past, right? His Jewish heritage as well as his apostolic ministry. He says, I, I can't let that stuff keep me from going forward. I can't be looking back all the time. I've got to be looking forward. No, no past 
religious achievements, no present ministry uh, successes could keep, could, I, I guess, lull him into thinking that he had already possessed all that Christ had for him, that he had come to perfection. No, he hadn't. By the way, that phrase, forgetting what lies behind, it would also include his past sins against Christ, wouldn't it? I mean, he, he, was, he was not saying, I can't remember what I did. He was not forgetting those past wrongs when he was a persecutor of the church. But he would not allow his past pursuit of you know, bringing torture and even death to the followers of Jesus to take his eyes off in meeting Jesus at the finish line. His past sins could have caused such grief and despair that he would never go forward, that he would never go forward in serving Christ. And, and his past religious achievements that he had mentioned, that could have caused such pride that one would think, well, there's nothing more that I could really do for Christ. I've already done more than anyone else has ever done. I guess I can just relax and take it easy and just be the perfect guy. Danger, danger. You know, I, as I was thinking through this thing, churches are full of spiritual cripples, paralyzed uh, by grudges, bitterness, sins, tragedies of their past. They just can't forget what they did in the past, the evil that they did, the hurt that they brought to other people. They just can't get it out of their thinking. And, they, and, and their thinking goes to the, God could never love me because of all of those things. Right? And, and those people are oftentimes people who struggle with, am I really born again? Do I really know the Lord? How could he ever love me? I get how he could love other people and forgive other people, but I don't know, could he really do that with me? They kind of struggle with that because of that way of thinking, remembering and focusing on past issues rather than focusing forward. And others, you know, they, they try to survive the present by reliving past spiritual victories. I mentioned that last, last week, that you could have a person that you know, won a victory over sexual uh, temptations, pornography, and all of that, and he thinks, oh, man, I've got it. That'll never happen to me. Watch out. About ready to be brought down if he thinks that way. But what he's saying is, hey, we got, we, we, we've, we've got to break with the past if we're to pursue the spiritual prize. And that's past sins, and that's past victories, and that's, you know, our life before Christ and our life since coming to know Christ. God is interested in what believers are doing now and in the future. Not what we've done in the past, forgetting what lies behind. Jesus said it well. This is what he said. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke 9, 62. Same principle, right? Don't look back. He was using a farming metaphor. Plowing, you know. If, if you plow and you're constantly looking back at your line, and when you're done plowing, that line's going all over the place. You've got to be focusing forward. So 
If the first participial phrase, I know you love that word, if that phrase is forgetting what lies behind, you know, describes a runner not looking over his shoulder, then the second picture is him straining forward with all his might, with every, every part of him towards the finish line. The word that is translated, straining forward. I'm not even going to say it because it's really, really long and you wouldn't want to write it down anyway. But just so that you know, it's a double compound, you know, prep, yeah, prepositional compound. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really long word and it's a vivid word. And by the way, it's only used here in the New Testament. Paul liked to do that a lot. Make up words or use otherwise unusable words because it fits what he's trying to communicate. And it is a word that is actually drawn from the games, the sport games of the ancient past, whether it was the Olympic Games out of Athens or the the Corinthian Games. Uh, There were uh, constant uh, sporting games in the past as as there is today. And, And it's a word that pictures a runner with his eyes fixed on the goal, Straining forward, eyes fixed on the goal. His hand is kind of stretching out toward it. And his whole body is leaning forward as he reaches the final steps of the race. It's like he's like that. That's the word that he uses, straining forward. You know, I want to make it to the end. And it powerfully pictures the, the need for focusing forward without a backward glance, with a complete effort in the Christian life, if one is to advance in their knowing of Christ. So Paul's described the manner of his running. You know, first, like, on the one hand, forgetting what lies behind. On the other hand, you know, straining forward. Uh, Now he speaks of the race itself, in a sense, and particularly the finish line. When he says, I press toward the goal for the prize. And he uses the same word that he used in verse 12, this press on. Again, in verse 12, he says, not that I've obtained it or I'm already perfect, but I press on. I pursue it, right? We already talked about that. Same word is used here, this word dioko. And and this is a pursuit, a hard pressing toward the goal to win the prize. And and, and do you notice that there's a goal and a prize? I press on toward the goal to win the prize. So what is the goal? Well, the goal, the Greek word skapas. We get the English word scope. Like you put on a gun, a rifle, look through it, a line, you put it out on the target, pull the trigger, right? That's the word that he uses here. It too is found only here in the New Testament. There's other similar forms of it, but this particular form of is found only in the New Testament and refers to that on which a person fixes his gaze gaze in that context of whether it was like a an archer that was pulling the bow on a target, you know, lining it up on the target. Uh, or metaphorically it could be used of a goal or a marker that would control one's life. But in this case what he's basically saying it's the marker at the end of the race when they you know the uh, the, the runner's fixing his gaze on the, the finish line. It's not a marker. Think of the tape that a runner will run through, you know, and who gets it? 
who gets to you know break the tape, the one who's in the lead. That's kind of the picture that he is using in his language here. So the Christian has to keep moving, moving forward toward the goal, toward the goal, toward the goal, always, not allowing himself to be distracted or diverted by looking back at you know his past, whether it was sin or religious achievements. You know, you've got to be looking forward. The goal is the end of the race. The end of the race where the believer will have full knowledge of Christ and become just like him. Now, two of our dear ones have finished the, the, the race recently. <laughs> oh, that's awesome to think of. They've ran the race. They, they kept their eyes on the goal. And they have received the prize. They have. So what is the prize? Well, Paul, that's what Paul ultimately has in mind, right? It's not the goal. It's the prize when you cross the line. The goal is to cross the line. The prize is what you receive when you cross the line. And this, too, is language from the Greek games. Uh, you know, the prize referred to the victor's crown that would be given to the, the athlete who won the race. And uh, it's not unlike what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.24. He said, do you not know that, that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run in a way that you may obtain it. Get the prize. Now, Paul aims to win the prize. Not, however, by coming in first. Because in the Christian race, it isn't about who gets there first or in the shortest time, you know, the fastest time. No, it's, it's finishing well. That's the race. It's finishing well. And that's the uh, uh, award or reward that is given to everyone else who finishes well, this prize. And, and, the, and, and the word prize is qualified in the text. What is the prize? Oh, well, it has to do with the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, right? The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. <laughs> it's like, Paul was brilliant. I mean, this too is the imagery from the games. The games were presided over by highly respected officers. And as each event was run and completed, uh, a herald would announce the, the, the winner, the name of the victor, his father's name and the, and the country that he was from. And then the athletes would come and receive a palm branch or a laurel wreath would be put on the head. That was the crown or the prize. You know, it's not unlike the Olympics, right? We just had the Olympics and you think about it. Everyone's competing. Three do better than anyone else, a bronze, silver, and gold. And, and when the event is done, they bring them to little podiums, little step-ups, right? And the bronze is a little lower than the silver, and the silver is a little lower than the gold, and the gold is right in the center. And so the athletes climb up on those podiums, and they receive their medal. And, and then they look forward, and they show three flag poles. And the flags will rise together. The bronze will end up hanging a little lower than the silver, and the silver a little lower than the gold. 
that's in the center, but beautifully, the gold winner, their national anthem is played, right? So it's identifying their country. Their names, of course, are known. I mean, it's a beautiful picture. That's what it was like in the old time as well. And if Paul is using this imagery, and he is, well, then the upward call is not the prize. I think a lot of people think it is. You know, the upward call is I die, I rise up, and I get to be with Jesus. Going up's not the prize. It's going up. It's up. Come on up here. And, uh, you know, but it is part of the ceremony, isn't it? The prize itself that we receive is, you know, a reward that God gives us. And, and it's put in the terms of a prize or a crown. Think of Paul when he wrote Second Timothy, the last letter he wrote, right before his death at the hands of uh, the Roman authorities. He said in Second Timothy 4, 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Right? So not only one, everyone gets the gold. If you love the Lord's appearing, you get the, the crown, the whatever, however you want to picture that prize, what it is. But as I thought through that, I thought, the crown itself is really not the prize. It's symbolic isn't it? I mean, no one's going to be walking around heaven and wearing a crown and say, look at me. I got a crown. You, you ain't got no crown. If anything, you know, everyone's there, they would all be wearing a crown, I suppose, because they finish faithfully, you know, they get the crown, all those that love disappearing, they're nothing but crown wearers in heaven. So are you going to be proud about that? No, 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 no. It really, the prize is Jesus. Right, The prize is Christ. It is to know Christ fully and completely. That's the prize. And it is the prize for which every believer should be pressing forward from the moment of their initial encounter with Christ to the time they are called up into his presence. Yeah. Wow, that took a long time. But it was so exciting. I'm so excited. I need to drink water. The last one is, is, is the briefest of the points. Well, I, I tease on that. It's not in my notes, but I'm going to make it the briefest of the points. The fourth thing that is required, it requires conformity to apostolic teaching. And that kind of almost removes us out of the imagery of the athletic metaphor, but it's what he ends the paragraph with. In verses 15 and 16, notice what he says, Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So Paul is moving from the, you know, a description of his own pursuit, right? That's what he's been saying. I haven't obtained it, but one thing I do, I, keep, I forget what lies behind. I stretch forward. I want to get the prize. I run the race. I'm focused forward. No backward glance. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And that's all he thinks about. And so he's already described himself, and now he brings the believers in Philippi along with him. And by the way, us as well. Let those of us who are mature think this way. So he's including everyone, isn't he? 
Now, literally, I would translate this as, as many as are perfect. As many as are perfect, or you could put as many as are mature. It, it actually starts, and all the other uh, translations that I looked at all start with a therefore, or they have a therefore. Therefore, because this is true about me, it needs to be true about you. And that's kind of the idea that he's presenting. And it picks up on his previous statements in verses 12 through 14. So Paul's pressing toward the goal and, and the prize, knowing that he had not yet been perfected. It reflects the kind of attitude and character that should be true of the entire body of believers. Every Christian should think the way that he thinks, is what he's saying. Every Christian should be doing the same as Paul, thinking the same way as Paul. That's what he's actually saying. The the only difficulty with this is, is in the use of the word mature or perfect. And I think various translations either have perfect or mature. Now, there are two ways that you can look at this. You, you could look at it as though he's saying, so as many of you that think like me, I want to encourage you, let's keep thinking like me. You know, you're mature in the Lord, keep thinking like me. This is how, what should characterize all of us. But the word that's used here, teleao, again, it's a word that Greg talked about a few weeks ago in his sermon, telos, teleao, tetelestai. I mean, that's all from the same word. It could be meaning perfect, mature, complete, um, so on and so forth. Well, he's already used the word in verse 12. I talked about it last week. Not that I am, I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. And he wasn't talking about maturity there because he, he wasn't saying I'm not mature. He was saying I haven't reached perfection yet, right? So that was a noun form there, uh, or verb form there. Here's the noun form, teleoi. Uh, it, is he talking about maturity or is he talking about perfection, spiritual perfection? So you can take it one of two ways. One way is he's, he's just encouraging those that were mature to continue to think the same thing as him. It's almost like he's, he's saying, let us leave behind any childish thoughts of reaching spiritual perfection by means of rigid law keeping or doing you know, all the good things. Let our disposition be to seek Christ always and, and, and ever be moving on to higher ground. In fact, as I thought through that, I thought, oh, that hymn. Maybe you remember that hymn, Higher Ground? I'm pressing on the upward way, new heights I'm gaining every day, still praying as I'm onward bound. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land. A higher plane than I have found, Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. So if he's talking about people who he's saying, you're mature, keep growing in maturity, that would be the idea. I tend to think that it's not that. I tend to think he's actually using a little bit of reproachful irony. That the word is used the same way it was in verse 12, as spiritual perfection. So what would that be? It would be him saying this. Listen, some of you think that you've already reached spiritual perfection, or that's what the false teachers are causing you to think. So as many of you think that way, that you're perfect, think my way. 
That's what he's saying. He said, you're not perfect yet. You're not perfect yet. I'm not perfect yet. So let's keep thinking what I've said about the way that I think. You think like I think. Now, I, I tend to think that's what he's doing, but either works okay. I mean, you can find people on both sides of it. It's not a big issue with me, although I am right. You should think like, no, I'm not, I'm not an apostle. He was. He got direct revelation from the Lord. And that's why he can say, you need to think exactly like I think. Because the way I think is the way that Jesus thinks. That's the way God thinks. And you need to, you know, get in line with me. And, and do you notice he actually broadens it out a little bit? He says, and if in anything else you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you as well. That's why I think it's spiritual irony when he says that you think you're perfect, you're not. Think like I think. And that way, if you'll just think like I think about knowing Christ fully, gaining Christ more and more every day, you know, being found in him more and more every day. If you think like I think that you're not already there Hey, be careful, don't make you look back, strain forward, keep pressing on. If you think like I think, then if there's anything else that comes up and you think differently than I think, God's going to reveal that to you too, that you're wrong and I'm right. Now, you know, if I were saying that, then that might sound like great pride. But for Paul, it wasn't. He was a humble guy, actually. He's saying this, he, he knew he got direct revelation from the Lord, he was an apostle of the Lord, and he was teaching God's truth, so they need to follow in the truth that he taught them. And then finally, in the last sentence, you know, in verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Be honest with you, that is just a weird verse in the Greek. It, it translates nice into English, I guess, but it's a weird verse in the Greek. But basically what he is saying there is, we've already obtained to a certain level of maturity, right? If you're thinking like I'm thinking, then we're, we're, we're doing good. We're, we're, we're pressing toward the goal and all of that. Let's hold true to that. Let's not be deceived by the false teachers. Let, let's not let them, you know, get us distracted. And in fact, when he says hold true, the word that he uses there is one that means to, you know, be living in conformity with some presumed standards or set of established norms and customs. In a military setting, it was word that was to, to stand in line or to march in line. And so the modern idiom of that might be expressing the idea, walk in the same track as I'm on. Stay in my track. Don't get off track. Follow in my track. Because we need to think alike. We need to be unified. And that's how he ends it. He says, be unified with me. Be unified as a church. And this is going to lead into what he begins chapter 4 with. We're not to chapter 4 yet, but in chapter 4 he takes up the issue once again of unity in the body and the strains of division and dissension that was going on in that church. Much like any church. Granted, there may be differences of opinion on the best way to you know, live life to the glory of God. There could be different levels of understanding of doctrine. Yes, that's going to happen. But those differences can't allow us to create dissension and 
And he's going to address that. No division in the body of Christ. We've got to be united. Okay. Now I'm going to just give you some final questions to think on. Questions that I'm thinking on. That cover this paragraph. I'm just going to read them. Do you have them, Joel? Okay. You could get them from Joel. You could put them up on the screen and you could write them out if you want. But I just want to put it before us to be thinking in these terms. Number one. Am I truly aware of my spiritual condition? You know, have I stopped growing in my relationship with the Lord? Connect to that. Am I willing to ask others who know me, know me well, to point out any weaknesses that they see in me? What what am I using as a measuring stick to evaluate where I am in my spiritual walk? That all goes with one question, right? Am I truly aware of my spiritual condition? The second question. How much effort am I putting forth, putting into growing in the knowledge of Christ Jesus? Connected to that, how, you know, how does that compare to the energy and effort that I put into other things in my life? Recreation, vocation, relationships, fishing, hunting, skiing, all things that require knees that work well, which I cannot participate in any of those things anymore. So I just have the ability to just put all my energy. No, I can get distracted like anyone. But I'm willing to think through that. How much energy am I putting toward knowing Christ better? Am I, am I, I thought, am I all in? Am I all in and growing in the knowledge of Christ, being found in Christ, gaining Christ more and more, moving on to higher ground each and every day until I get to the finish line? Number three, have I allowed my focus to be turned away from Christ and the upward call of God in him? Have I allowed my focus, my attention, to be turned away from Christ? Well, how would that happen? Well, by focusing on other things. So, I, you know, I'm asking myself, am I focusing most on Christ? Or am I distracted by others around me? You know, I'm looking at other people more than I'm looking at Christ. Come on. Or am I looking at the mess of politics and COVID more than I am about looking to Christ? Knowing him better. Things that keep me from running the race as I should to win the ultimate prize at the end of my life. And I know, I, I may feel like I'm more at the end of my life than younger people, although we're all getting up there, aren't we? Most of us in this room. We ought to be thinking of end-of-life issues. And then number four, am I growing in knowledge of sound doctrine and healthy doctrine? Sound and healthy doctrine. Because that's what Paul is addressing at the end of that. Sound and healthy doctrine. Am I allowing myself to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine? You know, that may sound good and it's exciting. Or it's promised me, me things like health and wealth. And, you know, um, you know, the very best life of anyone in all the world. Because I'm, you know, a royal child. And, and so, you know... I, Am I being deceived by people that are saying, you know, as preachers, they're, they're telling you people, we're God. And because God lives in us, we're God. 
What? And people are eating that stuff up because it thinks that it elevates them. It does. It elevates them to the pride of Satan. Am I easily tossed to and fro? Am I getting off track? Am I keeping a close watch to see if I am conforming to the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles? So one final passage to read with that, very very brief, is in the pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy, chapter 4, starting in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. To this end, we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. The sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sound words of his apostles says in chapter 6 of the same epistle, verse 3, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up and with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved or deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Sound and healthy doctrine will keep our eyes focused on the finish line will keep our eyes focused on the prize, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we are thankful for your words, this sound and healthy doctrine that you've given us this morning from the pen of the Apostle Paul, but from your heart and mind. Help us, Lord, to realize, even as Brian was sharing earlier, how the gospel is transformed formed us, saved us from our past, and promised us a great future. Help us to focus there. Help us to focus on the end so that we might run rightly, honorably in the present. Help us not to trip too much and to stumble, but if we do, Lord, lift us up through our fellow saints who come alongside and encourage us. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, our great Savior. Lord, we are thankful also for the food that you've provided for us today to eat. We ask that you'd bless it to our bodies and our conversation around it. We ask all of this for the glory of Christ. Amen.